Hello, hello, Leah Pika here. Today's guest is a data visualization pro who's here to take us through some super advanced charts and when to use them. Stay tuned to find out who's taking us to school on the Present Beyond Measure Show, episode 84. Welcome to the Present Beyond Measure Show, a podcast at the intersection of analytics, data visualization, and presentation awesomeness. You'll learn the best tips, tools, and techniques for creating analytics visualizations and presentations that inspire data-driven decisions and move you forward. If you're ready to get your insights understood and acted upon, you're in the right place. And now your host, Leah Pika. Hello, hello, and welcome to the 84th episode of the Present Beyond Measure show, the only podcast at the intersection of presentation, data visualization, storytelling, and analytics. This is the place to be if you're ready to make maximum impact and create credibility through thoughtfully presented insights and ideas. Today's interview is loaded with tips on advanced charts you may have never heard of and graphs that you'll love to use from a true data visualization expert and esteemed author, so be sure to stay tuned in. Now, as usual, I'm excited for today's guest because his contributions to the field of effective data visualization, communication, and presentation skills are unrivaled, and he's super funny to boot. Let's dive in. Hello and welcome. Today's guest is an economist at the Urban Institute in Washington, D.C. In addition to his research on programs that support low-income communities, he is a writer, teacher, and creator of policy-relevant data visualizations, and he's considered a leading voice for clarity and accessibility in how researchers communicate their analyses. He's also the author of amazing books, including Better Presentations, Better Data Visualizations, Elevate the Debate, and Coming Soon, Data Visualizations or Better Data Visualizations in Excel. And I have the Better Data Visualizations right here, one of my favorites. And his contribution to this space is nearly unmatched. So I'd love for you to help me welcome today's guest, John Schwabish. Hello. Hi, Leah. Thanks. Good to see you again. It's been a while. I know. We took a while took to a while. get this going. <laughs> Had a few detours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's great to have you back. As long as you keep publishing new books, I'm just going to keep having you return. Yeah, I don't know. This is the fourth one. Could be the final. We'll see. We'll see who <laughs> someone will drag me somewhere and I'll go kicking and screaming and then I'll say, OK, yeah, it'll be, it'll be fun to write. Right. Next is your data memoir. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Step one. When I was four, I made a bar chart. Right. Yeah, right exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, your experience is vast in this space, just helping researchers, but also spilling over as a major player in just the data visualization and presentation space. I've been using your information as a digital marketer and data analyst for many, many years. So I want to jump right in and talk really tech stuff because okay. that's what the people want. <laughs> so what I thought I would ask is the first question that I always get in my workshops is, what tools do you use for your visualizations? Talk about the tools. Yeah, tools is always a big question. It's like, oh, you've shown me all these graphs and all these right. <laughs> good techniques, but how do I actually make the thing? Yeah, I, I hear this question a lot too. So 
I mean, there are a lot of tools out there. And my view on tools is that they are just tools. You know, you hear a lot of people say, oh, you should never use this tool or that tool or that tool because they're garbage or they don't do this, they don't do that. My view is they are just tools. So, for example, I spend a lot of my time in Microsoft. I use Excel for probably three quarters of my visualizations. And when I hear people say Excel doesn't make good graphs, I'm like, well... First off, I'm making the graph. Like Excel isn't doing anything, <laughs> you know, till the Terminators take over, like I'm still in charge, right? But like, would I use Excel <laughs> to create an interactive feature on the New York Times website? Like, no, that's not what it's good for, right? But my main toolkit is Excel, particularly, obviously, for static stuff. A lot of the work I do at the Urban Institute, we work in the Microsoft suite for a lot of things for our writing and, and for our presentation. So Excel makes sense for a lot of that work. I also use Tableau and I've been using Tableau a lot more over the last year or so. I'm just trying to get better at it. And I, for no particular reason, other than I like, I just kind of like the challenge. Like there are some weird things in Tableau that <laughs> for folks who ever look at my Twitter feed every once in a while, have some like question, like, why is Tableau doing this weird thing? And, the, and what's great about Tableau, maybe even more so than a lot of these other tools, is that the community around Tableau is so helpful. It's extraordinary. Like you can ask a question on Twitter and you'll get an answer immediately. You do right. that for Excel. It's not it's not the same. No one wants to raise their hand yeah, and be right. like, I love Excel. I love Excel. Right. <laughs> you look up over here. Yet we all use it. Again, I see what Tableau is good for and what it, you know, maybe not good for. It's just a tool. A lot of people ask me, like, do I use Power BI? I personally don't use Power BI because I spend most of my time on a Mac and Power BI is not on a Mac yet. So once Microsoft and Apple, like... <laughs> Can get over whatever and it comes out. I'll probably <laughs> use Power BI. I used it early on when I was able to run parallels more in my computer and be able to have both operating systems. I do like it because it taps into the Microsoft system so much more. I mean, it's just natively into Microsoft. So if you're an Excel person and you want to make dashboards, you know, Power BI is great. I will say that I just don't think that the Power BI dashboards, a lot of what I've seen, and people do amazing stuff with it, but sort of the general stuff, I don't think it looks as glossy and as kind of polished as Tableau. But I don't know if that matters. I always think about like, if you think of all the dashboards that are created in any tool, what portion of them are sort of these bespoke, custom, awesome looking things, but really don't help you do what I've dashboard is like the goal, right? Is like explore the data. And of the rest of those that are sort of your more standard dashboards, how many of them are not public and people just using them in their day-to-day -day work and sitting around the office? And for those, like who cares if it's shiny and glossy and looks polished? Like the point is for you and me, Leah, to like dive into the data. So I like, who cares how, right? So anyway, back to your core question. So I use Excel, Tableau, I use a lot of Data Wrapper, and we've been using more of Data Wrapper at Urban now. Data Wrapper is, for those who don't know, is a browser-based data visualization tool. It has a very robust opportunity to use it, I guess would be the way to use it. That's free, so you don't have to pay for it. You can do a lot with just the free version. Basically, you can use every visualization they have in the library you can use for free. The only things you can't do is like build in your custom default templates in the tool. But fine. Okay. It's a browser-based tool. So it has its own downsides. Like you wouldn't want to put like social security numbers into, into data <laughs> okay. wrapper, right? And it's a limited library. And at least for me, I can't really hack into the HTML code, <laughs> but I do like it. I do like that tool. I also use Flourish, which is a similar kind of tool and it's more focused on animations. I do like Flourish 
for some sort of more different types of graphs. So like I'll use Flourish when I want to make like a bee swarm chart or some other charts that are not necessarily like in that sort of standard graph type. Okay, so I've mentioned Excel, Tableau, Data Wrapper, Flourish, and the last one I use is R. So I use the R programming language primarily when I'm making maps and when I'm doing small multiples. So small multiples, of course, we have these smaller multiple charts. We're not packing everything into one graph. In R, it's just so easy to make small multiples. It's one extra line of code. You do facet wrap and bam, a line chart that have that had 10 lines in it is now 10 separate graphs. Interesting. Wow. So I will say personally that I am a mediocre R programmer, <laughs> but I also can't, I mean, I have not learned, I'll be positive here. I have not learned how to do the statistical part of R. Okay. So I don't run regressions or clean data. I use tools that I've been using for a long time in my career, Stata and SAS, to do the data cleaning and analyzing. And then I'll package it up and bring it over to R to do the data viz. So again, I, see. I use a lot of different tools. And the book that you just held up, the Better Data Visualizations book, I use all five of those tools plus a bunch more. <laughs> like, yeah. Like, you know, I, I saw mean, ones in there. I was like, there's no way. <laughs> yeah. Excel. And I'd say most of the, in the charts in that book can be created in Excel. The ones where you end up in trouble are maps. Excel's just not great at maps. And a lot of stuff that's sort of curvy or swirly mm-hmm. <laughs> because like Excel is just not very good at curves. It's very angular. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. It's very angular. So you need, you can work in lines and you need lines of sort of a non-trivial length and you can kind of do almost anything in Excel. But like, if you think about the border of your country or your state, that's jagged or irregular. Excel's not going to be good at that because a curve is infinitesimally small lines stacked together and Excel's just not going to be good at that. So That's interesting. Yeah. But for most of the other stuff, it's it's great. So I, I just use a combination of tools and it really does vary on what I need to do and where it's going to live and does it need to be responsive or does an image work? You know, just a straight up image. And do I need people to explore the data? So then I'm in, you know, interactive world. Am I just telling a story? I'm just making a point. Yeah. So I, you know, I think there are a lot of tools out there that people should explore and should use because there is no like tool that rules them all, right? There's no Lord of the Rings. Right. Great ringer. Now, other people will disagree. You know, everybody, lots of people get into their little camps of my tool's the best and I just, <laughs> I'm just not there. So come back to me in a couple of years and maybe I'll be into the Tableau world so deep that I'll be like, no, you should just use Tableau, but I, I don't think I'll, I'll be there. You know, what I really appreciate about your answer is it depends, mm-hmm. which for me is the answer, ideally, for any of the questions that I always get, like, what's your favorite tool? What's your favorite chart? What's your favorite platform? What's, your favorite... what's the right thing? And I'm like, no right, no yeah, wrong. No right, no you wrong. You have to look at the specific situation, the environment it's being consumed. And like you said, is it interactive? That's going to change. You know, I know what you mean where with uh, Tableau, I've been experimenting for quite a long time, (laughs) trying to do an analysis of something called the Bechdel test, which is a test criteria to measure whether something Hollywood puts out like a movie TV show meets the criteria for being women empowered, Mm -hmm. not even women centric, but equality. Equality, yeah. And I found a really interesting use for Tableau, which one day I'm going to release it. I'm excited. Where I did a timeline of the pass fail rating of different studios over time, 
starting from like the 30s when the data begins. And it was able to show me a very curvy, like you said, line that expanded in width or shortened depending on their percentage success rate. So you could see like really wider areas of the line were good years, thinner areas, not so good, depending on how many movies were released that year. So it is, you just have to look at the various strengths of each. The way I think of these different tools, and some of them have like a philosophy behind them, right? So like Excel, for example, it works in lines, bars, and circles, and they not need to be like a non-trivial size, right? And then it works in a 2D XY space. And that's sort of the underlying philosophy. And you can sort of describe a philosophy in lots of different ways. But like R, for example, works in a layering philosophy where let's say you wanted to make a world map where the countries are colored by different, you know, they're colored from a light blue to a dark blue. And then for whatever reason, you want to add bubbles on top of that, circles of different sizes. That's literally just one extra line of code because it's just taking the map, layering on the colors, and then layering on the bubbles. So the ggplot package in R is really layering. And then Tableau, there's two ways at least that I think about it. One is sort of what it calls measures and dimensions. So it's things you group and then things you count. And then the other piece, I think, is the biggest barrier for people just learning Tableau is that it generally, not always, but generally likes its data to be in a long or a tall format as opposed to wide. And if you're kind of coming to data or data visualization new, you're probably like probably start with Excel or Google Sheets. And we tend to work in kind of a wide format. So let's say you have countries and we're going to have two variables for countries. We're going to have GDP and we'll have life expectancy. So in a wide data set, you would have in your first column, all of your countries. Let's say there's 230 some odd countries down that first column. In the second column, you've had GDP, some number. And then the third column, you'd have life expectancy, some number. And that for most of us is just instinctual or it's just, just, you know, okay, I can put those into two different graphs and good to go. In Tableau, generally speaking, it prefers to take that data and not have it as three columns in the way I just described it, but longer so that you would have three columns, but they'd be different. The first column would be the countries and they would repeat. So you'd have instead of 200 rows, you'd have 400 rows. The second column would be the name of the data field. So you have 200 rows with the name GDP and 200 rows, the word life expectancy. And then the third column would be the data value. So all the way down. And that way, when you bring it in Tableau, you have the thing that groups it, which is the two categories and your countries, and then the data value. And once you sort of get that, that sort of more database structure, as opposed to kind of a spreadsheet structure, Tableau starts to fall into place a little bit more. And so each of these tools has their own kind of underlying philosophy. And I think once you sort of get and understand the philosophy, and then like the challenge, of course, is like, make it instinctual as you're working with the tool, then you can really start to build some things and become more fluent in kind of pushing the boundaries of what you can do with it. Like you said, Leah, like having a line that curves and then changing the width of it in Tableau is not really that difficult once you understand how it works and the different markers and that sort of thing. So yeah, it's just interesting. I mean, again, they each have their weirdnesses and they all have these, (laughs) right? But like, I don't think any one tool is like inherently better than another tool. although. Many listening will say, no, my tool's Pitch the bar. best. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. No, I like being uh, the Switzerland. of <laughs> Yeah. And I'm fine with it. I'm fine with it. And, and, you know, for me, I mean, it'll be interesting. I think, you know, some of your listeners 
you know, your listeners work in different places and with, with different types of people. And for me, my full-time job is in the nonprofit sector. So my avatar of the people that I'm generally working with is a data person and a nonprofit organization that has six people or 12 people. And that data person, generally in my experience, has been thrust into that position because they are the person that have some skill or some affinity or some skill there. And but they're sort of thrust into this position. And that nonprofit of six people, they might not have money to buy Tableau at $1,500 a license, right? Or they don't have big data, so they don't really need, you know, or they're collecting data on a quarterly basis and that's it. And it's pretty limited. So, you know, if that's your case, they all have Excel, they all have Microsoft. So maybe you don't need these other things. And maybe they're always printing out their briefing books. And so they don't need stuff online. I, I just, as you said, it depends and it doesn't just depend on your skill set and your affinity for using a tool. It depends on your audience and what they can do. And part of what I try to do is just empower groups that I work with to say, I can show you how to make this dashboard, but I want to help you be able to make this dashboard next time. So maybe it's not the best business (laughs) business strategy, (laughs) (laughs) but like, how can you do it with your data next time? Or at least update this dashboard. So we're going to do a little bit of training at the very least to show you how these tools work. Absolutely. Yeah, no, that, that makes sense. So one of the things I loved about Better Data Visualizations, your book, was how many charts I had not heard of. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought we would dedicate, you know, we spent a lot of time talking on the show about the basic ones that are best for more explanatory executive decision making. But I want to give the people what they want and talk a little bit about some of the more obscure items that you have in here. And I want to see how many we can cover. So the first one you mentioned what the heck is a bee swarm? Oh, I knew you were going to come with that one first. <laughs> it's like one of my favorites. Yeah. So Good. what's a bee swarm chart? So it is essentially a bunch of dots. They tend to, when you plot them out, it's all the dots in your data when you plot them out, generally because lots of distributions have some sort of mass in the middle, they tend to look like a swarm of bees, which is where the name comes from. But you can think of it like, For anyone who's never seen one before, you could think of it like instead of showing a bar chart where you have just you're showing, say, the mean or the average or the median of some value, you actually show all of your data. And that way you can see, oh, yeah, the mean of this variable is 50, but you can see the distribution isn't from 49 to 51. You've got a distribution goes from 1 to 90 or something like that. And like every graph type, they work in some instances and not in others. So, for example, (laughs) if I had... A hundred dots, a bee swarm chart might make a lot of sense. If I had a hundred thousand okay. dots, you're just going to see like Mass, <laughs> a massive a magic eye. right? Exactly. <laughs> so it's not really going to work. So I really like the bee swarm because you get to show more in your data. You actually get to show the variation more clearly than say a mm-hmm. bar chart or a something. Bar. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps engage people a little bit more. I don't have any real like research to back that up, but I just feel like. <laughs> If I see a bee swarm of the 50 states in the US, I live in Virginia, so I can go look for Virginia. And I think people will engage more with graphs when they can kind of see themselves in the data. And you don't necessarily get that in a bar chart. It's like, okay, there's the bar. I don't know where I am, but okay. So I'm a big fan of the bee swarm chart. Yeah, it's one of of my new favorites. That's so cool. And I'll try to have 
links to all of these, but you know, I'm, I'm looking at some of these and I'm thinking about the questions. I'm always thinking if I'm going to use a chart, I want to know the question I'm trying to mm-hmm. answer. And that determines the chart, not the other way around. Right, right. Um, like a bar is kind of like this totality. It's a view of totality. It's just this state is this value. Mm-hmm. But in looking at some of these swarms, I think you can ask deeper questions of, okay, I see where the general value is. However, there's a lot of deviation here versus this state. Maybe that's a good place to look to see why it's so much wider. Right. And if you think about, because you mentioned earlier the business case, imagine if you have multiple retail outlets. So you have 50 retail outlets in your in your company and average revenues in some quarter was $50,000. Well, that might mask the fact that some of them had $100,000 and some of them had $10,000 and the means missed that. I mean, that's sort of a core tenet of data visualization is like, look at your data because that helps you see the variation and, you know, means and medians is, and even variances sometimes mask those interesting or outliers or different findings. But the chart type itself, the B swarm, really helps you see that and especially see those outliers. And I think it could even be such an interesting storytelling scenario if you're presenting live and you're prepared to kind of walk through what a B swarm mm-hmm. is supposed to say. Absolutely. I love to start charts or stories with more aggregate views, kind of start them off with something they expect, something simple, but then like reveal that this is what happens when we look at the distribution of this and look at what we're seeing here in these places. So oh, that's so neat. Now, we love yummy edible charts like pies and donuts. Tell me about the waffle. Oh, the waffle. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> breakfast food. The breakfast, breakfast food chart. Yeah. <laughs> so I will say that I define the waffle chart maybe a little bit differently than others. So okay. think about what's generally called a unit chart. So a unit chart might just have squares or circles and they're just kind of arranged in some grid or stack or something like that. For me, I define a waffle chart as kind of a subset of that, which is it's literally a 10 by 10 grid so that each unit, each object, each shape is a percentage point. So I kind of define it fairly specifically and only 10 by 10, only 10 by 10. So now does it really matter what we call this? But like (laughs) it's John's way or the highway. Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So (laughs) if you want to call it a unit chart, you can go ahead and be happy. (laughs) I like the waffle chart as one of the alternatives to a pie chart. I think it is in a lot of ways kind of more engaging just because the pie chart's been around forever and we've seen it a million times, which is good and bad, right? I like that you could do a little bit more annotation and labeling on it. You have a little bit more flexibility in how you're going to do that and you can sort of show groups within groups. So if let's say you have three groups and they're 20%, 50% and 30%, you can even show in that 20% group, you know, maybe there's 10 squares you want to highlight. So add a little border around those 10. So they're literally just 10 by 10 grids. I use them as one of my sort of standard alternatives to the pie chart. And not that pie charts are bad, like there's that whole side. What? what? Oh what? My God, yeah. You know, there's a whole side like we could, you know, <laughs> we, we'll need a whole much, a much longer show I to know. talk about that. <laughs> Not that pie charts are bad, but in some cases, pie charts just kind of look old just because people have used them for so long. And sometimes like to your point from earlier on the it depends part, you know, sometimes engagement is just a goal. You just need to get people over to your website. Over appeal to your, is a thing. Appeal it's is a, a thing. Of, right, a exactly. Right, exactly. And like, Maybe it is just to show 
look how much of the total this part takes up. And that's important right. to show, right? And so you're not asking people to see, is this like 78% or 79%? You just want to see, oh, it's like, it's a lot. And so maybe just engaging people is the goal. And I just like that chart as an alternative. And it's easy to make. Right, because it's just squares or, you know, <laughs> right? So like, you know, and it's named after waffle. I mean, anything where you can get these good breakfast foods. I know, exactly. Pie is a breakfast food. For those who are wondering, <laughs> pie is definitely a breakfast food. Pie is definitely breakfast food. <laughs> no, I understand. And also even with the pie, you know, being a circle where we're not the best tuned to determine area with circles. We're not good at comparing them. And I think this is a great alternative to understand what the composition is of a specific piece in comparison to the rest and probably even be a little better at understanding it. All right. I love this one. I'm so glad you mentioned it. I wish more people would learn to use it. It's the dumbbell dot plot. Oh, yeah. So... How can we explain this to folks? <laughs> it does need a bit of training. It does. So people call it different things, dumbbells, dot plot, there's other words for it. I mean, you could think of it like two dots on a line, just sitting next to each other with generally a line or an arrow that connects them. And so the way I approach this is the way many, no, I'm going to say most, I think this is going to be true. I think the way most people would plot the following type of data is going to be using a paired bar chart. So imagine you have two observations for multiple groups. So that might be countries, states, gender, whatever, right? So you've got value A and value B. When you say paired, do you mean clustered bar? Yeah, I mean bars next to each other. Right. So okay. paired or clustered. Yeah. That's so how I yeah. know. Yeah, yeah. I wanted to. Make, I was going to ask you about yeah, this. Yeah, this yeah. is great. <laughs> so they're sitting next. So these bars are sitting next to each other. So you've got the first value for the United States, the second value for the United States, space, first value for Canada, second value for Canada, so on and so on. And I think my instinct is that that's the way most people would plot those data. And the challenge there with that chart type is a there's a lot of ink on the page, so we've got a lot of stuff. It's hard to like add annotation. It's just kind of heavy sometimes. Kind of heavy. But more importantly, we're asking people to make a lot of comparisons simultaneously, right? you got to compare the level of the bars by their length or height, the difference between the two, and then those same comparisons across the group. So you got to do within and across comparisons. And it's kind of hard to do. And so a dumbbell dot or a dumbbell chart or a dot plot often makes that task a lot easier because you've placed these dots on the same row for each, in this case, country. And you can see both the relative differences and then you can see the gap between them. And so it's a good approach. And I would just say, like, for folks who are really interested in the tools piece, like, that chart's also pretty easy to make because you just have to recognize that it's just a scatter plot, right? Oh, because okay. the X dimension is your value. And then the Y dimension is just some row holder, just a placeholder that you're putting it on a single row if you sort of have the dots next to each other, if that's your image of it. So. Again, back to our earlier conversation about philosophy. What can your tools do? How do they, oh man, I don't want to use the word think because I'll get into chat GPT and, you know. <laughs> oh, boy. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> What's the mechanism that the tool works in? And so if you think about that sort of 2D XY space, you just need data in two dimensions and it doesn't matter what the dimensions are, right? It doesn't matter if it's a real number and an integer or a real value and something you've made up. As long as you have two dimensions, the tool's going to plot it. And so that's all you really need. 
That's great. Yeah. The way I think of it is a list of categories as if it were a bar, but I have two values Mm -hmm. for each category. And I loved it for doing things like pre post Mm -hmm. analysis of pages or yes, no survey data or demographics, Mm -hmm. male, female, things like that. Which is a really good point because it just demonstrates that it can be used for so many different types of data. Right. 2020 and 2023, mm-hmm. male and female, yes and no. I mean, it's just like you could kind of use it for any data, which is a great aspect to it. I will say that my personal approach is if I use a dot plot for change over time, I generally add an arrow to the line that connects the dots. Oh, I'll do it as an arrow. Okay. That's and if a good, it's like hmm, a tip. yes, no, I'll just like just the line because I'm not, yeah. it's not a direction, right? Oh, that's a great idea. Yeah. I like that. Yeah. It's clever. <laughs> All right, so we can check that one out, okay. the dumbbell dot plot. All right, this one has a fun name, and I actually came across this the first time during the last election. It was a Voronoi, if oh, I'm pronouncing yeah, that correctly. Voronoi chart, yeah. <laughs> These are tricky. All right, so yeah. how are we going to explain this to folks who've never <laughs> seen one before? Well, let me describe it maybe the way I describe it in the book. Okay. So this might be a good way to do it. So imagine a city, and imagine that there are 20 fire houses, fire stations in that city or different areas of the city. What you can do with that city is you can look at each of those firehouses and you can split the city up into many areas. So you just kind of cut up your city so that each one of those many areas you just created has one firehouse in it. If you create the Voronoi diagram correctly, the fire station in each one of those little areas is closer to all the areas in their section than any other firehouse. Okay. So what it is often used for is urban planning and in the ecology literature so that you could say, okay, if there's a fire at 4th and Main, fire station A should go there, not fire station B, because they are closer. Mm -hmm. That's sort of like the classic example. The way I've seen them used for now is more like an alternative to a pie chart. Because if you think about you take that city and you just split it into these multiple groups and you can sort of get this part to whole. You know, it's just a different way. I mean, I don't know if we're really good at discerning the quantities from that, but that's how I see them more often now as opposed. I mean, if you go like deeper into like the the one that I saw that was really cool and I, I don't remember. I don't think I saved it. I was read not reading because I don't really it's not my field, but like on fire prevention in forests, like firefighting Uh in forests, and how they would like place different teams in the forest to fight the fire. Oh, interesting. They would like, okay, if we position this team here, they're going to go to this edge of the fire. And this team over here goes to this edge of the fire. And if you just draw the geography, sort of draw the map or the diagram correctly, you can sort of figure out who should go where. So yeah, it's it's a really interesting kind of chart type. That helps me understand a bit better. The context I saw it during the 2020 election maybe it was 538. I'm not sure. It was almost like a decision tree that showed what would happen as each state was called. Mm, Yes. And all of the outcomes of the election on every scenario, every combination of every state going Mm -hmm. a particular way. And then they would kind of fill in the state that would be just called. And then the remaining states were We're, filtering filtering. the path. I thought that was such a fascinating, (laughs) I was there for hours, like looking for certain outcomes (laughs) and rooting for certain states. 
Yeah, it's a good chart. It's it's harder to make, obviously, because yeah. you sort of need these irregular polygons, which, you know, it's harder to make. So I'll give you one more that I think is really cool. And hopefully some of your listeners know of Jon Snow, not the Game of Thrones Jon Snow, but <laughs> the Jon Snow cholera map. So real quick. So Jon Snow, mid 1850s, made this map of this area of London and tracked deaths from a cholera epidemic. And it's a fairly famous example of early epidemiology. Now, people call it the snow map, but there is a second version that he created shortly after his first version. Well, let me backtrack for one second. So the issue that he uncovered was that there were different water pumps around this area of the city, and he figured out that the water was contaminated. And that was his big sort of contribution to epidemiology. But what's really interesting is that his later map actually drew this area around this particular region of the original map surrounding this one water pump that was that had broken and kind of was infected with sewage. And so you can take that, what people call that map, and divide it into a Voronoi diagram because each water pump becomes one of those positions, like one of those fire stations that we talked about earlier. Mm -hmm. And so you could sort of see people were closer to that one pump than other pumps as you sort of draw this out. So when people call it the snow map, it's actually the snow Voronoi diagram, which is just kind of a cool data viz history background. Kind of thing. Yeah. So. <laughs> Easter egg. Easter egg. Yeah. yeah, it's an Easter egg. Yeah. That's great. So, you know, obviously may not be the most practical for most cases, but it's fun, I think, for people to just see data visualized in different ways and tap the different ways we're able to understand information in different forms. So we'll get a little more practical. We'll talk about a kind of chart that's used a lot in everyday business and maybe has a more accurate alternative, which is the geographic map, I think, cartograph. Well, so there's the standard map would be like a choropleth map. Oh, that's what I meant. I have a bunch of my, I'm looking at a bunch of them on my screen <laughs> right now. All these words. Yeah, I know, right? So yeah, if you see a map where the states or whatever are filled in with a color that's called the choropleth map. The challenge with the choropleth map is that the size of the geography doesn't always correspond to the importance of the data value. So think about the map of the world. Russia is a huge country, like tremendously huge. But pick any data set, the value for Russia may not be particularly important. And so, right. <laughs> you know, like median income is a, is a great one, right? Luxembourg has the highest median income in the world, but it's a super, super, super tiny country. And so you can't even see it. And so there's a whole like I spend most of the chapter in the book talking about all these other different approaches where the idea is let's resize the geographies so that they're closer to the data value, which has this effect of distorting the data so that Luxembourg no longer looks like Luxembourg because we've made it bigger and Russia no looks like a Russia because we've made it smaller. So trade-offs, tensions, it depends back to the kind of theme of our discussion, <laughs> right? Right. I mean, like you could use a bar worldwide to just show that, but you're also going to lose the sense of spatial right. location, right? Like, are there questions or conclusions you can come to because of the spatial location? So one of the things I saw that I really liked were the hexagon or tile versions. So tell us about those. So one way that you can make a map that does this trade-off, you know, the trade-off is that people can find themselves on a map 
and but the geography may not match. One of the trade-offs is to create a tile grid map, what's called a tile grid map or a hexagon or hex grid map, where basically you take all the units, the, all the geographies on your in your geography and make them the same shape, be them squares or be them hexagons. And I'm no cartographer. I'm sure cartographers <laughs> would debate, like I'm sure they could talk forever about hexagons are better fit than squares. <laughs> When you do that, you have to start making some decisions about where you're going to place the squares because now it's arbitrary. And so what you see often is in the U.S. is a good example that most of the tile grid maps I see, Florida is like off to the side and just below Georgia. But we know that they are like stacked on top right. of each other in real life. <laughs> but if you want to get that sort of like curvature, that kind of look of the U.S. because the Florida kind of branches out there to the east – most people kind of push it over to the side there. So it's arbitrary how you structure it because it's an arbitrary shape. But one of the advantages of that is you can start adding more data to your map. So if you want to add like little line charts to each state, you can do that uh, because now mm -hmm. Texas and Rhode Island are the same size or the same shape. So you can sort of add more data. You can play around a little bit. And you can use color or in sure. color intensity as the measure, because now the area, the size is not working with the color to create additional meaning. I think it's just a useful way to think about geography in a different way. But I think it's also worth just noting that people love maps. They love to see maps. They love to read maps. But that doesn't mean that every data set that is geography should be a map. Like, I think that's just like important <laughs> right. to realize that like, right. <laughs> just because it's geographic data, why are you using a map? And to your, Leah, to your point earlier, like, are you telling a geographic story? Like, oh, look at this thing that's happening in the Southern part of the country. Like that's an interesting geographic story. But if you're just saying, I want you to compare these different values across this geography or this country or this world, you know, maybe a map isn't the right way. Because if you look at a map where, say, you're putting countries into five bins, well, now in this one bin, the U.S. and the U.K. are the same color, but maybe their values are very different. And you can't see that in the map. So there's just this, there are these all these trade-offs. And it's not that one is right and one is wrong. It's just a trade-off and back to it depends, which I hate giving that answer because <laughs> people want an answer, but it really does depend. Right. Test and see. Yeah, test and see. And, you know, try. <laughs> and I think the test and see, I think the part of seeing is getting the feedback from folks. So you're testing, you're seeing, like, ask people what they thought. Like, is this clear? I think a lot of us, we make the thing, we put it out, we move on to the next task in our jobs. And we don't have time or patience or whatever it is or money to like go in and ask people like, did that work for you? But I think that is how you get better. And you just find out, give me some feedback. Like, did I mess this up? Is this good? Is it clear? So I, I think that's just a big part of the data visualizers toolkit, which also data visualizer. I don't know if that's a thing. Like we got to come up with <laughs> you just a, made it a thing. we just got to, we got to come up with a name for what we do. So I like yeah. vizier. That's what I <laughs> vizier, came up with. Yeah. Well, then we'd have to get a fancy hat. So, oh, you know, yeah, you're right. Yeah. It's too much. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So this one's well known, but at least eight people told me how much they hate this chart type this week. So okay. why do people hate scatter plots? What's going on there? And can they be <laughs> redeemed? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I think because they're not instinctly intuitive. But it's important to note, like, they're not intuitive, not because we as human beings are unable to read them, but because we just haven't 
learned how to read them. Like <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> human beings don't, aren't born like knowing how to read a bar chart. We have to learn how to read a bar chart. Right. That's true. I think the way to think about this, if you're creating scatter plots and you've run into this problem of your managers or colleagues or audience like doesn't get it, instead of having one label for each axis, so let's do GDP again. So we'll stick to that. You know, say you have your country, your bubbles are countries, and on the horizontal axis is GDP. Instead of just placing GDP, and hopefully everybody listening knows that that's gross domestic product, but but like I had to add that parenthetical. I thought you said chat GBT. Right, right. Right. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. So you have GDP on that x-axis label. Don't be afraid to add maybe two other labels. That's, you know, maybe to the right, you say GDP is going up or GDP is higher and then maybe a little arrow. And then on the other side, GDP is lower. GDP is declining with an arrow that way. And so you add this like annotation layer or these labels that help explain to people how to read the graph instead of saying, maybe you've seen this graph maybe before, maybe you haven't and just kind of here it is. Good luck. Go figure it out you really provide more annotation and more instruction right within the graph. I agree. I think we don't train our oh, for sure. our audience enough in charts and annotate in a way to guide them through even step-by-step step to do that. All right. So maybe it's really not the actual charts. It's about the execution. <laughs> I think it's about us. I, I think this holds for a lot of things, you know, writing and presentations and all sorts of things. Like we forget that we have been working with our data or with our content for weeks or months or whatever. And we forget that people haven't seen it before and we just expect them to get it right away. And right. more often than not, we need to hold their <laughs> hand a little bit, right? So writing is especially that way. I mean, I find a lot of people who write, especially in the academic world, they write as if like, I know what they're talking about. No clue, no clue. <laughs> yeah. All right, so our last chart question before the next segment. Okay. Is there a non-standard chart in your book that you would just love to see people learn how to use more that you think is useful? Ooh, that's a good one. I mean, we've talked about a few of them. Like I think the dot plot is one. Mm -hmm. The other one that I like that I use a lot that is related to the dot plot is a slope chart. Ah, uh, how did I miss that one? Yeah, that's my, that's <laughs> kind of my go-to now. It kind of tries to address the same challenge as the dot mm -hmm. plot. And it's really just at its core, it's just a line chart, but with two points rather than multiple points. That's really all it is at the end of the day. But it's used in the same kind of scenario as the dot plot where you have data for Canada for two years, data for the US in two years, and you want to be able to make multiple comparisons quickly and simultaneously. I think the slope chart is a really nice way to do that. And it also can often be more compact than a paired bar chart or a clustered bar chart. So I think the slope chart would be the other one that I... I I, I mean, I do see a lot of people using it, but I think that's the one that I would like to see in particular to replace that paired bar chart. Well, I'm so glad you mentioned because I have a blog post about it on my blog, Perfect. Shameless Plug. Shameless Plug. Look at that. <laughs> and I agree. And we didn't again, even plan that. That I was know, like, totally, like totally organic. Yeah. Just complete like neuro <laughs> interoception yeah, there. Yeah, right. <laughs> I love it also, again, for like pre-post, but what I think it really lends itself well for is like building a story, like a slide build over a series. Yeah. And you can put like a certain number of the lines there that maybe people expect, but then really highlight and distinguish and bring in a line that people don't. Yeah. One step and, at a time. Yeah, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Cool stuff. All right, so we've entered our final wildcard question. Think very hard here and imagine this very plausible, realistic scenario. 
You're umpiring your son's little league playoffs when suddenly you trip and fall into a vortex that pulls you back to the moment you're about to deliver your first presentation. Do you remember what you're presenting about and what advice would you give yourself? Ooh, that is a good one. Okay, so a few caveats. I wouldn't umpire my son's game because that oh, would be a conflict sorry. of interest. <laughs> okay. So that's the big, Makes sense. big caveat. First presentation, I mean, like professional presentation. So not like when I was a kid. No. <laughs> one of my first presentations was when I was doing grad school, my job market talk, which is you write your dissertation and you have to sort of plan this like one talk that you're going to shop around, right? That's your job thing. And I gave it to the department. I did my graduate work at Syracuse University and I did the talk. And these were the days, Leah, not all of our of your listeners are going to be able to relate to this, but these were the days. <laughs> Remember these days where you had the plastic sheets and you'd put them on the projector. The transparency and overhead projector. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, right? I, I, I mean, don't yeah. know oh, what that is. Oh, my goodness. So for those who don't know that this was a thing... Back in the day, you didn't have PowerPoint, <laughs> didn't have projectors. You had to print your slides on these plastic sheets in kind of a special printer where it kind of always smell like burning plastic. Oh, man. And then you put these sheets on this projector that was like its big lamp and it would project up and then there'd be a mirror and it project onto, this, onto the thing. So anyway, so that was the day. And I had a laser pointer, which I rarely use anymore, but I kind of lost it. Like, I remember losing it on my body somewhere <laughs> and like I couldn't find it. And it turns out I had like maybe dropped it in my back pocket. But the whole time I was trying to find it, I was like stammering through the whole. I was like, um, so, yeah. Um, and then afterwards, my advisor was like, yeah, you need to cut back on the us and ums. So I was like, I just couldn't <laughs> find my laser pointer. That's all it was. Like, I was really prepared, but like. So I don't know what the lesson learned there is. Yeah. Well, this is really, really relevant to today with our laser pointers. <laughs> yeah, right. So that was pretty bad. Yeah. Well, I just appreciate the trip down memory lane <laughs> on that one. That that method for sure, yeah. highly d designed with neuroscience in mind, no question. Yeah. And that fan, that oh, the like fan, droning that would just burn fan, and like, you just and it would just gets so hot, like start and, doze off. And, oh, I remember I had a professor <laughs> earlier in graduate school his slides were blank transparencies and he would just write oh, like instead so of a blackboard, we're just like, right. And it's like, wow, this is, this is a so thing. trailblazing. Right. Wow. Right. At the time. Who, who knew? Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> well, that's a good one. All right. I'll take away, you know, just have your pointer, have, have your, your pointer. clicker. Just don't let don't it lose it. Back there. Don't, <laughs> don't lose it. it. Like keep your pockets closed if you need to. Don't lose your clicker. Yeah. It's a good, good one. Yeah. <laughs> I need a second. Yeah. Oh, well, I cannot believe how fast this went by. That yeah. means we had a great time once again. So unfortunately, our time has run out. But please let the listeners know where they can keep up with you. Yeah, absolutely. So my... Preferred social media is Twitter. So you can find me at Jay Schwabish. I'm also on Instagram, but it's mostly just fun signs that I see outside and take pictures of them. But mostly oh, Twitter. I'm that. <laughs> That's like my favorite thing. Right? <laughs> and then my website, of course, policyviz.com. And those are the main places they can get a hold of me. And if they want to see some of my research, they can go to the Urban Institute, which is at urban.org. And they can find all the great stuff that we're doing every day. Very cool. Well, again, we talked about... 
better data visualizations absolutely must have in your bookshelf. And all of the charts, books, links, everything we've talked about will be on the show notes page for this episode. John, it's always a pleasure. You didn't disappoint. <laughs> and just keep writing books. You'll keep coming back. Okay. <laughs> we'll Thanks, keep jamming. Lee. Thanks, Lee. I appreciate it. Now I have this whole new task on my list. Like, write new books. The only reason, yeah. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, thanks again. Thank and I look forward to when our paths cross again. All right. I hope you enjoyed that interview. Man, I could have kept asking about super secret chart types forever. <laughs> and, you know, while I recommend keeping it basic for senior executive and decision maker audiences and presentations, hopefully these new exciting advanced chart types will whet your appetite for exploring novel ways of seeing numbers in interesting forms. So to catch all of the links to the resources mentioned in this episode, visit the show notes page at leahpika.com slash 084. And if you'd like to connect, don't be shy and reach out to me on LinkedIn or Twitter and be sure to send a connection invite with a note mentioning the show. I love to meet my listeners and I respond to every message. And I'll leave you with a little bit of presentation inspiration by our guest, John Schwabish. And I located it as his final thoughts for his awesome book, Effective Data Visualizations. And I just really found it to be such a wonderful way of wrapping up his amazing work. And he says, I first became interested in data visualization after seeing much of my and my colleagues' work go unnoticed and unused. I did not come to the field with a degree in design or computer science or data science. And because I did it, I believe you can too. In fact, anyone can effectively communicate their data by thinking critically about their own work and the needs of their audience, readers, and users. I really can't improve on that. <laughs> it really says it all. You don't have to be a rocket scientist to deliver data effectively. You just have to know where to go to learn the tools, the skills, and the mindsets. And luckily, you are in the right place. That's all for today. Stay well and namaste. Namaste.